the rare Champion of Hope Awards honor individuals and foundations who are making exceptional strides when it comes to rare disease advocacy and change. On November 12th at 7 p.m. Eastern, Global Genes will honor the awardees in this year's Rare Champion of Hope celebration. This is always one of the most moving events for me of the year, and it, it's a chance to hear from really remarkable people doing extraordinary work on behalf of the rare disease community. There's no cost to join in the celebration. If you'd like to register to watch the event, go to globalgenes.org and pull down the events tab. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. In 2006, at the age of 29, Ben Munoz suffered a stroke from a rare condition known as arteriovenous malformations. One of the things that were critical in his treatment and recovery was the connection he was able to make with another person who had the same condition and had experienced what Munoz was going through. Munoz co-founded the nonprofit Ben's Friends, which operates an expanding set of patient communities for people with specific rare conditions to connect and support with each other. We spoke to Munoz about his own experience with the rare condition, the role support from someone with his own condition has played, and his efforts to create a forum where patients with specific conditions can connect and provide support to each other. Ben, thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you. We're going to talk about Ben's friends, your experience as someone who's suffered a stroke at the age of 29 as a result of a rare condition, and the importance that connecting with someone who had been through this played during the treatment and recovery for you. Let's start with your own experience. In 2006, you suffered a stroke. This was the result of what's known as AVM. What's AVM? Uh, our AVM stands for arterious venous malformation. It's basically a tangle of blood vessels that has been there since birth. And then whatever reason, it just decides to rupture, causing you know, a brain hemorrhage or stroke. And was this the first time you were aware you had the condition? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't have any specific stats, but I know probably the majority of people, the first time that they ever find out about this is during a rupture. So uh, I'd never had any kind of indication of this before. Strokes can be deadly. They can be crippling. These are something we associate with people who are quite elderly. What's it like to have a stroke at the age of 29? Yes, so you're right. So most strokes happen with uh, elderly cardiovascular conditions, Um, but I had a rare form of stroke, which is more in young people, right around kind of the age of uh, 25, 30, sometimes older, sometimes younger. And it's because just the, the wear and tear of maybe 30 years of blood flow causes the breakdown of tissue and then erupts. And then, um, as a young person, you start to you know you start to learn more about this this stroke that is pretty rare, and all the other stroke survivors that you ever come across outside of this are always elderly. And so, 
that's kind of um, the impetus is like there's no one that's ever had to deal with this in their 30s until you finally find others like you. So a stroke is something that happens in an instant, but it's something that you've really got to deal with for several years to to go through the healing process. What what was the time like for you as, as a patient? Yeah. So I was on the very fortunate side of that. So I had surgery and then recovery all in all about two years, but I was one of the lucky ones. Um, of course, there are those that uh, don't make it through, um, that don't survive. Um, but of those that do survive, a, mo- a lot of the time, unless they're very lucky to get to the hospital in time, we're looking for long, long, decades long uh, periods of recovery. Sometimes the damage is permanent and the rest of her life, sometimes in a wheelchair, memory issues, sensitivity to light, lots of different things. For me, I was very, very lucky. Um, I didn't suffer anything, anything major. What was it like psychologically? I imagine, you know, here you're a, a relatively young guy with your life ahead of you and you find yourself, you know, knocked out by a stroke. Is it isolating? Do you, do you feel like something is broken that can't be fixed? Uh, yeah. Um, so I think it was a lot of fear, a lot of fear and anxiety. And specifically because of how I was treated, which was um, a two-year recovery process. And during those two years, that is a very high risk of another stroke. And so I have this in common with uh, other maybe uh, cancer survivors also deal with this, where it's just day after day after day. You don't know if the if the you know, that's going to be the day where something bad happens. And so it's just this looming pending doom um, of maybe one of it, one day I have another stroke uh, or the similarly, a cancer patient is, uh, finds out that um, the cancer resurfaced. And so it's just a tremendous amount of anxiety and fear. How disruptive was this to your life? Were you working prior to the stroke? Uh, I was in school, so I had to take time off from school. I had to um, kind of uh, reassess, mostly reflect. After I was healed, then I reflected, and then there was this tremendous uh, just reflection, emotional uh, turmoil, lots of confusion. And, um, yeah, it was just a very confusing, fearful, anxious time of my life. You were able to connect with someone who had been through AVM stroke previously. What did that experience do for you? Uh, yeah, so it is it is a rare form of stroke, but I did have a family friend who also suffered, and I re- vaguely remember the, the letters AVM. And so I reached out, and he said, yes, I had an AVM. And so we connected. We talked about how... Uh, he recovered of how he dealt with it, and um, he suggested, um, well, I, I thought, okay, great. Well, this was fantastic. I'm so happy that I met him, and, and we talked about this, met and discussed it, and I, uh, I thought about what it might be like to connect with other people, just like we had this interaction. Well, how did that experience lead to the formation of Ben's Friends? Yeah, so I did research. When I Google, this was in 2000 and. 6, 2007, I did research. Um, I found that there were a couple of mailing lists, like through uh, Harvard Medical School had a mailing list for AVM survivors. And I think I found like an old Yahoo group, but they're all inactive. 
Um, there wasn't really much going on. And so I was able to reach out to a couple of folks, but I felt like that there was a need for if someone like me was looking for other people, there was probably other people out there looking for me. What exactly is Ben's Friends and, and how does it work? So, yeah. So the next step was, okay, since I have a, a software background, I was able to create a website. And the website was called avmsurvivors.org. And so I just went on the same uh, Yahoo groups and the mailing list for Harvard Medical School started to promote anybody who wanted to join this new community, which was like a Facebook, um, just for AVM survivors, just a social network for AVM survivors. And people joined and we all connected. We all shared our experiences. We all talked about our, our anxieties and fears. And it was incredibly cathartic. And um, it really, it really changed my life. And through that, a friend of mine, who's Scott Horn, said that this is fantastic. This is such a great outlet. What if there was other rare diseases out there that also needed something like this? So we brainstormed and we came up with an idea for a nonprofit called Ben'sFriends.org, which would be a hub of communities just like this for people with rare diseases. And um, yeah, and they would the the goal would be emotional support for patients with rare diseases. And, and how is the organization funded? Uh, members and donors. So we are nonprofit. Um, we don't really, there's no real, um, we're not doing ad, a lot of advocacy or we're not trying to fund research for a cure. We're strictly doing emotional support communities. And so our costs are very low. So we're able to, to pay the bills with member and, and uh, major donor support. And are these open forums? Are they moderated in some way? Yeah. So that's one of our, one of our, our secret sauces that we've got amazing moderators. And so through the years that we've been doing this for 13 years, we've developed a whole training curriculum and coaching and recruitment of moderators. So that way we, uh, we know that there's a lot of groups out there and a lot of them are a little bit, you can be a little bit chaotic, a little bit confusing. And so we set, we differentiate ourselves as having very well run um, almost professionally moderated communities, but actually the moderators are volunteers who also have the disease. So uh, we try to make them as warm and welcoming and well-organized as we can. How many different groups are, are there today? Uh, there's three or four dozen different communities for different rare diseases with uh, 75,000 members total. And are these done in conjunction with a partner patient organization or are they just communities that you create? Um, mostly communities you create. We, we have requests that people send us. Maybe they're on an existing community or maybe they have a friend. And so we research it, make sure that there isn't already a strong community um, because if there is out there run by another organization, there's no need for us to duplicate that. But if there's not, we will launch it. Um, hopefully we'll have some kind of founding support um, we'll launch it, and then every once in a while, we have a co-sponsored community. We have one, uh, for example, the Brain Aneurysm Foundation has a co-sponsored community. Um, we had one for, um, there's a disease called OPMD. That one was launched in, in cooperation with a pharmaceutical company. Um, but it's not a requirement. It's mostly based on patient. And is Anyone look at these forums to get an understanding of what it is 
any one of these conditions? Does anyone mind them in any way? Um, not yet. Not yet. I think, I mean, they're, 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 um, they're open and accessible. Some parts of them are. So uh, there are ways where you can mine them, but it's against our policy. So we, uh, if, uh, we, we do a little bit of policing around that to make sure that the data is not being mined illegally. However, um, we are starting to partner with some academic institutions and some um, clinical trial organizations about what it might be like because we've got 75,000 rare disease patients and, and many more who are not registered members uh, and lots of data. And we're talking about what it might be like to not just run social emotional support communities, but maybe also contribute to a cure if done with a lot of integrity and a lot of compassion. When you hear from patients in various forms, are there themes that emerge? What What are the biggest issues or concerns they have about living with their particular rare disease? Um, it's varied. So that, there's no, um, there's so many different types of rare diseases. Some of them uh, affect like some of the sex linked uh, diseases, chromosomal diseases affect only young, uh, young boys. So then you have the moms who join the communities and talk about their issues. And some of them are going to be in the boys uh, very often fatal so that we had that experience is very different than say an AVM community, which is a lot of the people have a brief period of recovery and a lot of, um, a lot of fear, but then a lot of them end up making a full recovery. And then they they want to uh, give back to the community afterwards. So there are some commonalities, which is fear, loneliness, confusion. Um, but there's also some. There's probably many more differences. And what draws people to the forums? Why, why do you? Why do they participate? Is it to to get information from people who've been through their condition before? Is it just to make connection with others who understand what they're going through. Yeah, so people join a rare disease community in general because they're looking for a connection, they're looking for some friendship, they're looking for information. Both of those are, 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 are yes, both of those are um, true. They join, I think, Ben's friends because I think uh, we are very independent. We're not... Um, we're not really associated with anybody. And so we've spent the last 13 years building their trust. So over the years, the, the moderators, um, the moderators stick with us for years and years and years because they know that we have the best interest of the patients at heart. Is there anything people get out of these forums that they didn't expect? Um, every once in a while, I hear stories of information and advice not medical advice, but more of doctor recommendations, which is a big need. And that ends up changing somebody's life. There was a, uh, a woman, Lisanne was her name, and she's on the AVM community. And she joined uh, just for support. She, she was told by her physician, her surgeon, that the AVM uh, lesion was too far deep into her brain that it could not be operated on. And so the neuro, the neurosurgeon told her that there's nothing more that they that he could do 
um, maybe just treat the symptoms and that's it. And maybe it'll continue to grow. Eventually it may rupture, but um, kind of like it sounded like a death sentence. And then she went on the community. She talked with people about her, her, her prognosis, and she got a recommendation from a top neurosurgeon in Arizona. And so she drove from Ohio to Arizona, had, um, had an appointment and a consultation. That surgeon said that he would be able to operate. He's very experienced. He's a top surgeon. And that it was a successful operation. She had the avium removed. It was completely healed. And then she went, she went on to live the rest of her life happily now in Ohio with her children. One of the things I imagine people go through is they reach out to a forum like the ones you run for their own mental well-being, but as they participate and as they become more experienced with their condition and as new people come in behind them, that they start being a source of comfort and advice for others. What what effect does that have on a patient to be able to, you know, go from being the one seeking help to the one providing yes. help. It's, um, I think it's life-changing also because it, some of these, uh, some of the, the members of the community are on disability. And that means that they're at home. Maybe they have like lost a little bit of their life purpose. And so those people make our most amazing moderators because they have the opportunity to help other people. And when you're of service to somebody else, it's really life-changing. It gives you purpose, motivation, and then they, uh, they are some of our happiest and most amazing moderators. Ben Munoz, co-founder of Ben's Friends. Ben, thanks for your time today. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.